This sermon, The Ascension, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, April 16, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, church. If you're visiting, uh, my name is Derek. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. This morning, uh, I have the privilege of preaching as well. If you would open up your Bibles or click your Bibles, whatever you have, Acts 1. We just recently spent a year and a half in Acts, and we feel like as good as it was, we missed so much, we're just going to start all over again. Amen. This is going to be a different kind of sermon, a little bit like a few weeks ago. Um, Acts 1 particularly verses 9 through 11, will be our really launching pad text, but we are going to be looking at a number of passages this morning. But let's read this together. Would you stand and let's read this together? We'll pray and we will, we will get into it. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while saying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Maybe seated, please pray with me. Father, as we look into your word, we are reminded these are your words, penned by men. You worked through their personalities. You worked through the culture and the times of the day. But Lord, your spirit was with them, guiding them to write down exactly what you intended to communicate. And so, Lord, it's with great confidence that we come to your word. And we ask what was prayed for before, that we would leave here changed, 
that your word would transform us. Jesus himself said that truth sanctifies. Your word sanctifies our souls. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that your word is active and living. It cuts to our hearts. It reveals our hearts. It encourages our souls. It spurs us on in righteousness. May your spirit be present right now for these things. For apart from your spirit, this is merely a talk. It's merely a lecture that has no ultimate power to change and transform. But when your spirit is here and your people humble themselves before your word, oh Lord, we will leave transformed. So let it be so today in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know the significance of this date? May 18, 2023. You weren't supposed to say that, Scott. Just kidding. Don't worry, I'm not about to make any bold predictions. But Deacon Scott McLeod was correct. May 18th, 2023 is Ascension Day. Ascension Day. Have you ever heard of Ascension Day? It was first celebrated in AD 68. It, it actually was, was celebrated with festivals. It, it was a big deal, particularly in the first century and actually for centuries following. It is actually considered a Christian holiday that commemorates Christ's ascension into heaven. We know about the birth of Jesus at Christmas, right? We, we know about his crucifixion on Good Friday. We know about Christ's resurrection on Easter that we celebrated last Sunday. But how much time, how much thought do we give to Christ's ascension? Were you even aware that there's a such thing as Ascension Day? If you weren't, that's okay. No, no condemnation. <laughs> now you do. But it is a worthwhile question to ask us. It's a worthwhile topic to dedicate the pulpit to because Jesus' ministry didn't stop at the resurrection. R.C. Sproul says, we know that when Jesus died on the cross at the end of that experience, he cried out, it is finished. But that work on the cross did not end Christ's redemptive work. He had other work to perform after the cross. He was raised for our justification. And when we talk about the work of Christ, we talk not only about his death, but we also talk about his resurrection. And when we speak of the work of Christ, it doesn't end with the resurrection. We talk about his ascension into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God and there he works as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus may no longer be with us in person, but he continues to work through his church 
by his spirit and for his father's glory. And so as a result of his ascension, which by the way, marks the end of his earthly ministry, but also it marks the beginning of his heavenly ministry as we will see today. Therefore, his ascension has significant and wonderful doctrinal importance for our lives and our faith. So the Easter series continues one more week. We'll be back to our shaping virtues next week. But first, the ascension of Jesus. Really, if you're taking notes, I have three points this morning. Jesus ascended where? Into heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And then finally, we'll talk about why all of this should matter to you and I right here, right now, today. But let's look at our first point. Jesus ascended into heaven. Of course, you know this, but let me just remind you, 2,000 years ago, God became flesh, really a fulfillment of what we see in Genesis 3. In the midst of the curse, we get this glimpse of the gospel when, when the Lord says that it is Eve's seed, her offspring, that will crush the head of Satan. Millennia go by, and in a small town called Bethlehem, God enters the flow of fallen humanity as a man. Fully God, fully man, incomprehensible. And yet he does. For 33 years, he grew, Luke tells us early on in his gospel that, that Jesus grew up just like we do. He grew in stature. He, he was a boy. He had a skill. He was a carpenter. For 33 years, he walked this earth. The last three of those, after being baptized by John the Baptist, the arrow, the precursor, he began his ministry with these words, believe and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For three years, he explained what that meant. For three years, he did signs and wonders to show that indeed what he said was true. And it all ended with what he was saying the whole time, they will kill me, but I will rise again. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died in our place. He stood in our place, bearing the wrath of God. They buried him in a grave, but it was a grave that couldn't hold him down. Just as he said, just as the Old Testament scriptures say, he was risen after three days. And we, we see, we, we read right here in our text this morning, for 40 days, he appeared, giving evidence that all of this is real. And then there's this day in verse 9, where Jesus is taken away from the disciples once again. 
He ascends into the heavens. Luke's description in verses 9 through 11 teach us that, that Jesus just didn't suddenly disappear. He didn't vaporize into thin air. He, Luke, Luke describes it that he, that he was taken up. They watched Jesus being taken up into the clouds. He was taken up into a real place, heaven. The disciples watched it. The angels said that, that he was taken into heaven by a cloud. I would submit to you, don't think fluffy white cloud. Think a cloud of God's glory if you understand the biblical theology of a cloud and significant redemptive moments in the Bible. He's taking them. He was taken away from them and up to a definite place. That place being heaven. And there's a lot that we don't know about heaven. One, one thing scripture teaches us is that heaven is an actual place. And it's going to be beyond our scope today. It's going to be more of a sovereign grace university uh, teaching to, to, to really exhaust that. And I want to encourage you, if you, are, if you want to learn more about the nature of heaven and, and what heaven is like according to God's word to, to go to Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Chapter 57 is a wonderful chapter. And, and by the way, if you want to read somebody who, who God has just graced with a, a, a tremendous sanctified imagination, read Randy Alcorn on heaven. Read, read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Read Randy Alcorn. But for, the, for, for our purposes this morning, as it relates to the ascension, we can be sure of this according to Acts 1, 9 through 11. Jesus ascended into heaven. He is in heaven. And heaven is a physical place. Just think about Jesus and, and what the angels say here for a moment. It is important for us to remember when we think about the ascension that, that Jesus, he, he, he was raised from the dead physically. It wasn't a spirit that they saw. Jesus was a physical man. People touched him. He told Thomas, see the holes, touch me. Jesus died a physical man. He was raised from the dead a physical man. He spent his last 40 days on earth, not as a spirit, but as a man. He ascended into heaven, not as a spirit, but as a man, he will return just as the disciples saw him leave, not simply in the clouds, but as a man, a physical man with a real body like yours and mine. And you know what that means? That means that right now he is as a physical man. He is in a physical place. Heaven is not a mystical, spiritual idea. It's a real place, and Jesus is there. Jesus spoke about heaven as a physical place. If you remember John 14, he said to the disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I may be, you may be also. Stephen's experience, he saw a real heaven. In Acts 7, when he said, 
He was full of the spirit as he's being stoned. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's what he saw. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Interesting that he was standing as if he, because we know as we're going to see this morning, he's seated at the right hand of God. But there he is standing ready to receive Stephen into his presence. John saw a physical Jesus in a physical heaven. Revelation 4, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, and then he heard the voice of Jesus. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. Jesus didn't simply vanish into thin air. He ascended into heaven, a real place. The second thing that we need to understand about his ascension is that he ascended to God's right hand. He ascended to God's right hand. We don't see that here in Acts 1, 9 through 11, but we see it in other passages that we'll look at in a moment. But I just want to say, when we think about Jesus being raised, we typically think of the empty tomb, right? We think of the earthly resurrection. But his ascension raised him to the highest of heights. <laughs> this isn't, his resurrection was not merely a physical resurrection. It was followed up by his ascension that placed him at the right hand of God, where he now sits. Some, some theologians have referred to this as the session of Christ. That word session comes from a Latin word that means sitting. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and that's significant for numerous reasons. One, it's a fulfillment of scripture. Psalm 110.1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The fact that Jesus ascended to God's right hand is important because the right hand of God is the position of power and authority. Ephesians 1, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The right hand of God, none can ascend higher. It is the ultimate place of power and authority. The fact that Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand is, is important because it's also the position of glory and honor 
Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5, I, lo- I love this, this scene. John says, then I looked and I, heard, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. In other words, more angels than you could perceive. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And blessing. <coughs> Listen, if you wonder, what am I doing here this morning? Here's what you're doing. You're getting a foretaste of that moment. You're joining in on what is happening right there. That's what Hebrews teaches us. We join in with the angels who stand around the lamb who was slain. Where he receives all glory and all honor. Excuse me. See, the, the, the ascension of Jesus is also an exaltation. And it, it, it is the result of and the, and the reward for his work of salvation. Thank you, Tim. It is the result of and the reward for his work of salvation, Christ, the ascended Christ, not just the resurrected Christ, but the ascended Christ now sits at the right hand of God in full glory, in full honor, in all power, and in all authority. And you know what? He does that in a way that he didn't before he came as a man. Oh, Christ has spent eternity past as the second person of the Godhead. Perfect fellowship. The moment he ascended into heaven, having completed the work of redemption, all the angels now praise Jesus as the infinitely worthy lamb that was slain. They praise him as the king of glory. As the writer of Hebrews says, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. The angels praise him as our propitiation. The angels praise him as the head over all things. The angels praise him as the chief cornerstone in which God's church is being built. The angels now praise him, the ascended Savior, as the great bridegroom who has promised to come back for his bride one day. Now the angels stand around Jesus the ascended one, and praise him 
as the victorious one who has conquered Satan and sin and death. Jesus stands at the right hand of God. He sits at the right hand of God in all power, all authority, and in all glory, and in all honor. The fourth reason why Christ's ascension to the right hand of God is so important is it's a demonstration that indeed his work on the cross is finished. Hebrews 1.3 says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That, that imagery, sitting down, it, it, it communicates the job is finished. You ever done that? Long, hot day, working in the backyard. You go in, you plop down, and you go, whew, I'm done, <laughs> good. You even get a sense of this a little bit, right? God in creation, the seventh day, he rested. He, as if he sat down and said, it is very good. It is done. Christ ascended. Notice when he was raised, the, his earthly ministry was still happening. Did you notice what we read in Acts? Notice verse, um, notice verse 2. No, verse 3, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during four days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The resurrected Savior is still at work. His earthly ministry is still happening. He has accomplished what, what God's redemption requires. He has accomplished what God's holiness requires, but yet he is still teaching. This wasn't just a big party. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about what, here's what's going to happen next. Here's where all this is going. He gets to the right hand of God and he sits down. The job is finished. He's seated at the right hand of God. Now listen, that doesn't mean that, that Christ is, you know, he's on a sabbatical. <laughs> However long that sabbatical might be. For him to sit down at the right hand of God, it means that his work of redemption is finished, but his earthly work of redemption is finished, but it doesn't mean he is inactive. Have you ever wondered what Christ is doing even now? Well, the ascension to God's right hand is evidence that his, I would say it this way, the, his ascension to God's right hand is evidence that his visible work of redemption here on earth is completed but he continues to work at the right hand of God. Jesus at the right hand of God is at work governing, and Hebrews 1 through 3 says, upholding the universe, upholding creation. If Christ determines that the chair you're sitting on should cease to exist, you will immediately fall to the floor. Christ is upholding by the word of his power all things, causing them to, to be and function and act as they should. Jesus, at the right hand of God, is at work 
ruling over his church. We just read that in Ephesians 1, 22. Romans 10, verse 14 through 17, tells us that Jesus is at work in the world, saving sinners like you and I through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus continues his high priestly work as we see in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, sympathizing with your weaknesses. Do you feel weak this morning? Christ isn't disconnected. He isn't unaware. He isn't uninterested. He sympathizes with your weakness. As your great high priest, Christ is at work ensuring that you can approach the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in your time of need. And there's more. From the right hand of God, your ascended Savior is busy praying for you. Get that? He's busy praying for you. R.C. Sproul says, one of the chief accents of the New Testament in terms of his present work for his people in his work of intercession. Every day in the presence of the Father, Christ intercedes for his people. He goes on to talk about the promise that Jesus made to Peter when he said, Satan will try to sift you. I will pray for you. I will intercede for you. Listen, isn't it a blessing when you're struggling or not? When somebody says, I've been praying for you, Heidi. Chris, I've been praying for you this week. When you have lunch with somebody, you have real fellowship and and your friend walks away knowing what ails your soul. And you know they'll be praying for you this week. That there's something that the Lord does. That there's a dynamic there. The Lord, the Lord uses that to calm our anxious hearts. The Lord uses that to, to lift up our hopes to cause us to see, oh, it is well with my soul. It's a blessing to hear that people are praying for you. And if you need prayer, I'll pray for you. <laughs> but the prayers of your ascended Savior are not like my prayers, <laughs> if I remember to pray for you. Jesus knows the mind of his father perfectly. He knows what you need right now, how you need it, to what degree you need it. Perfectly. And his prayers are more than supplication. I think it was J.I. Packer who said, certainly, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing because I, I don't have this in my notes, but 
I remember reading this somewhere at some time. Certainly, Christ's intercession is supplication. But more than that, it's intervention. Christ intervening on your behalf. Christ praying for you on the basis of his righteousness, on the basis of his blood, on the basis of his resurrection. Jesus sits at the right hand of God praying for you. You might ask, well, praying for what? (laughs) What do Jesus' prayers accomplish for me? Well, here's some things we know for sure just from Scripture. Jesus' prayers ensure that all things are indeed working for your good. He intervenes to ensure that. Jesus' prayers ensure that you are receiving and growing in the spiritual blessings of the salvation his suffering won for you and his spirit lavishly pours out on you. The ascended Savior's prayers ensure that his righteousness and his blood will always be enough for your standing before God. It's as if he continually applies his blood to you. He continually makes his righteousness yours before the throne of God above. This is why we will never be in a place, even in heaven, to stand before God apart from the blood of Jesus and the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We will always be covered in that. And why? Because Jesus intercedes. His blood intercedes. His righteousness goes before you, ensuring that you will always have right standing before the Lord. His blood and righteousness will never fail you because he is applying it at all times. I think this is part of, of how we get to Philippians 1.6. I will, I will finish what I began in you. I will keep you. I will keep my blood covering your sins. I will keep my righteousness under your name. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. That is to the end. Think preservation. I know that it's important for us to persevere, and perseverance is an important Christian category, but ultimately we need to understand our perseverance through the preservation of God. And so, what does he say? He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to preserve those who draw near to God through him. Why? How? Since he always lives and intercedes for them. How can we stand and be saved to the uttermost? Christ always lives to make intercession for you before the throne of God above. 
his life and death and resurrection and ascension continually plead your case. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And then he says this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And you know what he says immediately after that? So what can separate you from the love of God? If it is God who pardons through Christ, who died, who lived and died for you and was raised from the dead for you, and by the way, who right now sits at the right hand of God, his very life wrapped up in interceding for you. Did you see what he says? He ever lives to make intercession for you. <laughs> That's his work right now. Until that day when the father says, now go get him. He is interceding. He lived for your righteousness. He died for your sin. He was raised for your justification. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where his work, his life, is to intercede for you before the throne of God above. I love this song. Before the throne of God above. You know the first verse. Yes, I'm going to sing. <laughs> Visitors, every now and then I just love to sing. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. That's why Christ ascending to the right hand of God matters. And it just doesn't matter in eternity. It matters right now. It matters for two reasons. One, Jesus' ascension matters because it gives you a glimpse of your future. We heard it this morning from 1 Thessalonians. I love that passage. <laughs> Christ will come back and you will be with him. Remember Jesus' promise to the disciples in John 14? I am going. I am leaving. But I will come back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He didn't say this, but... And my blood, will, my righteousness will ensure that that place will be kept for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there. So Jesus' ascension matters because it gives us a glimpse of our future. And over and over, Scripture promises, Jesus himself promises, he will return for us and we will live in his presence eternally. And that place is called heaven. A new heaven, a new earth. Yes, the current heaven 
The new heaven will look different than the current heaven because in the current heaven, the spirits of the saints reside. But in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have a physical existence. We will be just as he is, perfected in his glory. But it also matters today because it gives us comfort it matters because it gives us a glimpse of our future, and Jesus' ascension matters because it gives us confidence for the present. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to wait for heaven to benefit from the ascension of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago. It comes zooming into our lives. It parachutes into your day. It, it parachutes into whatever your most difficult circumstance is, and it preaches hope. If you remember last week on Easter, the question was what we do with the empty tomb. Today, the question is, where is your confidence in life? Where's your confidence in life? When you don't know how to pray. Life is so sideways and upside down, you don't even know how to pray. You ever been there? I have. And I'll be there again, I'm sure. Where's your confidence? When you don't understand what's happening, the situation in your life it is never what you would have imagined in a million years. You are confused. You have no idea why. You don't even know what's happening ultimately. Where's your confidence? When your faith is weak and doubt is strong, where is your confidence? When sin is crouching at your door. Go ahead. It's okay. You'll enjoy it. No one will know. Where is your confidence when Satan is tempting you to despair? Where is your confidence? you remember Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17? Go read it this week. There's some application for you. There's three different parts to that prayer. And in verse 9, Jesus prays to this effect. He says, I pray for those that you have given me. And in that immediate context, he's not talking about you. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about those disciples that were with him in the moment, specifically his inner circle. He prays that they would be one. He prays that as he and the Father are one, he, he prays for their protection. But then in verse 20, Jesus' prayer broadens. And this is what he says. He says, I do not pray for these only, think the disciples in verse 9, but for all of those 
who would hear their word, who would hear the gospel and believe. That's where you and I enter the picture. The apostles preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great commission they gave themselves to, and we are here because that message is real and transforming and powerful, and it has been preached throughout the millennia, throughout the centuries, throughout the decades, and at some point in time in God's perfect timing, it came to you, and you now become part of that prayer in John 17, verse 20. And in essence, Jesus' high priestly prayer, when you get to verse 20, is Christ's promise to you that he is praying for you. He is praying for you. Where is your confidence? It has to be in a crucified Savior. It has to be in a resurrected Savior. It must be in an ascended Savior who is seated at the right hand of God. Don't leave this part out. No doubt there's a reason the early church celebrated this every year. What a glorious reality. Your confidence is in the blood of Christ. It is in the righteousness of Christ. And it is in the fact that he has promised to pray for you. See, if you're looking for a sentence to kind of wrap all this up in, here it is. Where Jesus is now matters to you where you are now. We don't just wait for him to return. We, we don't just bite our nails and grit it out until he finally fulfills that promise of returning. We look to a risen Savior who has ascended to the right hand of God, who prays for us with all power, with all authority. You know what that means? His prayers for you will be fulfilled. Now, if you're hoping he's praying for a new Corvette, rethink your theology. You didn't hear that from me. But we sang about it this morning. Whatever has fallen upon you today, it is well with your soul. Because the ascended Savior not only redeemed you with his blood, but he intercedes for your very life right now. Where is your confidence for life today? Let it be in this, the great promise of the one who sits at the right hand of God with all authority and all power has said, I am praying. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you that you go before us in our prayers. Before we even think to pray, Lord, you are praying for us. You are interceding on our behalf in so many ways, beginning with upholding us in your righteousness and your blood that grants us forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow and not just seeing a crucified and risen Savior, but seeing a Savior who is seated at the right hand of God. Until that day that you return for us. Our prayer will turn into praise. Our faith will become sight. And we will join you. We will join you. Free of sin, free of suffering, free of heartache, full of infinite joy, the right hand of your Father, sharing in your glory, ruling and reigning with you. Lord, we can't get our hands around it, but it's true. So may where you are now, may it speak into all that we are experiencing today. And may our lives bring great glory as we place all of our confidence in our ascended Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.